Polarization is tearing our world apart. Many of us feel isolated and unable to speak our minds even to our friends and family. This is Effective Conversations with Yale Feiner, where we explore opposing viewpoints on polarizing topics and learn to speak with courage and compassion. If you have a unique point of view not represented here, please reach out to schedule an interview. You can find the link in the description. David is the director of We the People Forum, an NGO for depolarizing the United States. We have a fascinating conversation about conflict-solving strategies, healthy debates, the erosion of trust, and apocalyptic thinking. David is a conservative and a pro-life in his political views. He brings a strong argument of why we need both progressive and conservative on the political map, and why polarization is the most dangerous thing we're dealing with today. Can you differentiate between We Are the People and Braver Angels? Sure. Yeah. So We the People's Forum is a Braver Angels event. It's a specific Braver Angels event. So Braver Angels has many different kinds of, of workshops and events. Uh, Braver Angels Debate is one of our most popular kinds of events. And um, the Brave Angels debate is premised on the idea that you have, it's, you know, it's a debate about an issue. You have somebody speak for the pro side of the resolution for a couple minutes, and then somebody take up the anti side of the resolution for a couple minutes, and then you just follow that pattern. And then we also have um, uh, something called a red-blue workshop, where you bring together seven conservatives and seven liberal-leaning people in a series of exercises to better understand each other, find common ground, and clarify differences. So We the People's Forum is more of a, a traditional, you have, a, you have one or a couple speakers, and then you have a Q&A time with the speakers, as well as we open it up for discussion uh, to anyone who uh, has direct experience of the issue is invited to weigh in and comment. And the, the focus of We the People's Forum, it's really about Our tagline is where everyday Americans get time at the podium. And we focus on working class, blue collar people, because those are the many, many blue collar people just don't have the, the social power that many college educated people or a person with a postgraduate degree has. And so, I mean, you know, I, I think I understand uh, if I want to talk about immigration I can, you know, go to experts on immigration, you know, who study this for a living at, you know, Harvard or, or some other university. Or I can also talk to somebody who has experienced immigration for himself or herself and, uh, and can describe that experience and tell me their perspective on that. Right. And so working class blue collar people have a wealth of experiences and uh, have perspectives on those experiences. And so that's what we're interested in hearing about uh, We the People's Forum. It's really a place to elevate and hear from people who are often spoken about, but are rarely spoken with and even more rarely listened to and taken wow. seriously. That, that's amazing. And the vaccination uh, debate was part of that? Yes, exactly. So that was... that. Um, came about you know thinking about so there's a thinking about how nurses 
and other healthcare people are really you know, at the front lines of the the COVID pandemic and uh, nurses, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's a diversity of people who go in the nursing, but it's, you know, more of a working class kind of, um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people who don't necessarily have a four-year college degree, uh, you know, become nurses. And so it's, 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 you know, more of a working class profession. And so we wanted to hear from some, from, from, uh, from a, ideally we wanted to hear from two nurses one pro vaccine mandate and one against the vaccine mandate, um, knowing that this is something that is, you know, becoming a contentious, it has become a contentious issue among some nurses and other healthcare professionals. And so we wanted to hear from some uh, nurses uh, about their experiences with the COVID pandemic and their perspective on the COVID-19 vaccine mandates. And so that's what led us to invite Mary Galantino, who's a, a registered nurse, a palliative care nurse, and she's against vaccine mandates and uh, invited her to speak. Now, the unfortunate thing was that we we couldn't, um, we, we did not find a pro-vaccine mandate nurse to speak. And then that, so that, and ideally that's how we do things at Brave Angels, right? Is that you have, we have, uh, if we're, Ron, especially yeah. if we're talking about a really contentious topic, you're going to have, you're going to hear from both perspectives. And so that led to kind of an, an uneasy dynamic, I think on that particular forum where it beca- basically became Mary Galantino against everybody else, you know, with, you know, weighing in against the, um, uh, the but mandates. that's so interesting that you couldn't find somebody to speak or you couldn't find somebody that th- like wanted to speak or, 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 or yeah. a nurse. And, you know, I think that's not that I wouldn't, I don't ascribe too much meaning to that myself, apart from my own lack of connections with uh, nurses. And so certainly, um, you know, we reached out to people, but I would just say that my own network of nurses is not great. And uh, mm. so I, I wouldn't attribute it to, you know, I don't think, because I know there, I mean, as, as, as we saw on that, we, the people's forum on December the 6th, there were plenty of of healthcare people and yeah. uh, that that are willing to who are, who are pro mandate and willing to speak up about their perspective on the issue. So, yeah. but that really is so. We the People's Forum, if we are, if we're going to talk about a contentious topic, it really is good to have two people uh, weighing in on it. For instance, we had a we had a We the People's Forum on immigration uh, a couple months ago, and we had uh, they're actually friends. Uh, they. One of them voted for Donald Trump and one of them voted for Joe Biden in the 2020 election. And both of them are immigrants? And they're both immigrants. They both immigrated in the, their families immigrated in the, um, in the 2000s from Venezuela. And, uh, and they both know, you know, people who are, who are crossing, you know, who have crossed the border in the last year and, uh, and people who are, uh, you know, part of the uh, the surge of immigrants crossing the border, and what was interesting about so we we had you know there it was again it was critical to have a pro and a and a somebody who somebody who kind of was a Trump voter and somebody who was a Biden voter. But what was interesting about that is that they actually ended up agreeing a lot on immigration. Is that they both um, there was a lot of agreement. Although they didn't vote for the same presidential candidate, they actually ended up. Uh, agreeing a lot about uh, immigration, it, there was some differing perspective. Mm-hmm. So that that's another interesting thing thing that comes out, right? Is that among everyday working class Americans, there's just a whole 
you know, hodgepodge of uh, perspectives, regardless of whether you're conservative or liberal. And it's, so it's interesting to hear that, you know, you could have a, in this case, you had a Donald Trump uh, Venezuelan immigrant, a Donald Trump voting Venezuelan immigrant American citizen uh, saying, I love Trump. I think he's, you know, I think he's good for America, but I think that his immigration policies are, are too, are too restrictive. And I wish that he would take a little bit of a different approach to immigration, even though I can understand where he's coming from. Um, so things like that emerge that are kind of surprising, you know, um, and yes. Uh, so it's, it's refreshing to, you know, to be surprised also. Uh, and so this uh, kind of so conversation, if it was outside of we are the forum or braver angels mm-hmm. would, would be completely different, right? Yeah. And what we do try to do, we don't really have a lot of ground rules, but we tr- we do try to steer the conversation in the, I mean, first of all, in an environment of, of, of mutual respect. And we do, uh, you know, um, try to better understand the differences between people, but also look for areas of common ground. And, but and I think this is know, very special in Braver Angels to understand the differences. Like most of the yes. is about finding the common ground. And here you're right. kind of saying, no, we have to find the differences and each one, we are not giving up our stance. Can you say exactly more? right? And that's really important. And, you know, going back to the We the People's Forum we had on the vaccination mandate, there was a moment that was particularly tense. And it was when, uh, a, and, what, and we had said, you know, during the discussion time, anyone with direct experience of the issue, please weigh in and comment. Uh, otherwise, we, you know, if just you're welcome to ask a question, but anyone with direct experience, please weigh in and comment. And, and so there was a, a woman who her husband died of COVID-19, and it was through uh, a nurse who contracted COVID, and it was an unvaccinated nurse. I don't know if this was when we had vaccines or not, but it was an unvaccinated nurse who got COVID, transmitted it to her husband, and her husband died. And so here she is sharing her story very passionately with a nurse who is against vaccine mandates. Now, so that's, here's one thing, is I am glad that she spoke up and shared her experience. Yeah. And and to do so, I mean, of course you're going to do so passionately. I mean, something like that is something so um something so tragic that affected her. Of course you're going to be passionate about that. And so but and that's, you know, the 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 there there's there's ways that you can um moderate the passion or or make the passion, you know, come across productively. Um, one of which the way we do in Braver Angels debates, as you know, is when a person has a question for the speaker, they direct it to the chair of the debate rather than to the person itself. So that when you're channeling your intensity, not towards the person who you're asking, but towards the chair. Yes. And so that can, that can help to kind of direct the passion in a good way. So there's, there's ways that we can, we can work to channel the passion productively and meaningfully in a good way so that we can better hear each other. But let's accept and let's acknowledge that as a part of life and as a part of conflict and as a part of our different experiences, we're going to disagree intensely. And we shouldn't be shy about that. We shouldn't run away from that. We should welcome that. Uh, but the trick, of course, is to, is to be able to do it in a way that we're still able to hear each other well and still 
continue the conversation. Yeah, I, when, when I did my research, I found it very challenging for people when they think the other person has different opinion, they're stupid. Yes. Right? They're stupid, exactly. they're ignorant, they don't know. And it's even very hard for them to listen because they, they already know. Right. Yeah. And so my, my colleague, David Blankenhorn, he's the president of Braver Angels. And he wrote a, a wonderful essay that I would point to the listeners of your podcast. It's called 10 Theses on Trust. Theses. 10 Theses mm-hmm. on Trust. It's an American purpose. It's a web magazine, American purpose. And one of the things that he says in that essay that I think is really, it resonates as being true to me, is that it's easy to think that, oh my gosh, you know, we, people uh, who think differently than I do, they just, they're crazy. They don't, they don't, they're not looking at the facts. They're not being, why are they so stupid or why they're being so unreasonable? And what David Blankenhorn suggests is that it's not necessarily that all of a sudden a bunch of people became unreasonable or crazy or stupid. It's that there are fewer and fewer common sources of trust, fewer and fewer institutions that we trust in common or people Mm -hmm. that we trust in common. Our sources of trust are diverging. So much of life, as David Blankenhorn points out in that essay, and I find this for myself, right? So much of my life is based on who and what I trust. I mean, we, we, we were talking about, you, you, you think a lot about climate change and so forth. And David Blankenhorn gives this example, and I, I share it. I accept climate change as, as a reality. Um, now, I don't have the, the credentials and the ability to, I mean, I guess I could, but I haven't taken the time to really research the issue I'm, like you have, I'm sure. But, you know, I'm just a lay person. I've got, you know, busy doing other things. But I basically do trust what I do understand from climatologists and scientists who study this, even though I haven't personally verified this, yes. these, these, these things. Yes. But I trust them. Yes. And so, I mean, so much of life is, it, to me is like that. It's about who we trust. And increasingly, in America... Uh, and, and we're try- we have a heart. It's it's true that we have fewer common sources of trust. So what changed? What why why does it happen that we have fewer common? That is a very good question. Yeah. So why what changed so that we have fewer sources of common trust in America? I think in the world, like we can see it in the world too, right? I don't know. You can you can focus on America, but. Everywhere in the world, there is less and less trust in governments, less and less trust in medic- medical systems, and maybe in other institutions like that. So it's um, this alternative medicine as a whole. Uh, we have experienced the medical system in a different way. Mm. Our clients are people that usually try to go to doctors and it didn't work for them. And then they come for acupuncture because acupuncture is is cost more money, massage costs more money than just go to to the doctor and get a prescription for something. Yeah, yeah, and, and certainly, I and mean, what I what I when I think about why is this happening in America and the world, what I I'll just talk about what I see in in, in my country, America, yeah. in my circles, is I 
I do see that there's in the media. I mean, if you're conservative, you you know listen to conservative talk radio or you watch Fox News. If you're progressive, you watch MSNBC, read the New York Times. So you know our, the where we're getting our information from is 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 different. But then here's something I don't I I don't know the answer to this. But what I see is that. To me, there's a growing apocalypticism about each other. Uh, so if I'm a if I'm a conservative, and I by the way I, I identify as conservative, I mm-hmm. lean conservative. Um, that's kind of I, uh, yeah, it's my philosophical kind of political leaning. But um, in a, so if I lean conservative America, it's I'm, I'm, it's very possible, very likely that I'll think. You know, if and we had a lot of people saying if Trump doesn't win in 2020, it's the end of America. And similarly, you have many progressives saying if Trump wins in 2020, it's the end of America. And I'm a conservative and I don't think it's true that because Biden, President Biden won in 2020, it's the end of America. Um. I also, by the way, don't think that it would have been true that if Trump would have been, re- even though I, I didn't vote for Trump, um, I don't think it would have been true that if he had won, that it would have been the end of America either. Um, to me, it, it's just this kind of dividing of the forces of good on one side and the forces of evil on one side, and we have to vanquish the other side. I mean, the the there's a Senate candidate in my state, Ohio, J.D. Vance. He wrote the, the book Hillbilly Elegy. But he's become so polarized in his campaign for the Senate. And he said something that really got me. He said that the thing that's good about our side, meaning Republicans, is that we hate the right people. Oh, my God. And to <laughs> me, I, that's just so extreme. And so I, and I don't know why it's we're taking it to this level of extreme. You know, there's the forces of good on one side and the forces of evil that have to be vanquished on the other side. I don't have an answer as to why. It's increasingly becoming like that, but I see that it is, and I think it's the thing that worries me the most about uh, the nature of our polarization in America. Right. And how long do you see that? Is it like since Trump, or I certainly saw it intensify with Trump. Yes. Um, so I mean, it, you know, it was present before Trump, but I I do. I mean, the, the level of, and I mean, and again, I mean, I, I'm a conservative who I didn't vote for Trump or Clinton in, in 20, the 2016 presidential election, but I didn't vote for Trump because I had concerns about his, his character and what that would do to America and to the Republican yeah. party. Um, I thought that it would have, could have a kind of a corrosively toxic effect on our moral character. And I do think that is happening as we speak. Um, but, uh, but I do, but I do think that the, the aspect of, of, you know, for instance, into my mind, demonizing people who voted for Trump because they voted for Trump and saying, I can't have, I can't be friends with you anymore, or I can't be at a family gathering with you because you voted for Trump. To me, that is, that, that represents kind of a new frontier polarization. And then I did see that start in 2016. 
Um, mm. And it did, you know, I, I saw it mainly uh, with people who were, you know, uh, concerned about President Trump. And, and and I do think there's real things to be concerned about. In my personal opinion, I think there's real things to be concerned about there with President Trump. Um, but to take it to the aspect of demonizing anyone who voted for Trump and saying, I can't have a relationship with you, to me, that represents a new frontier of polarization that's troubling. So I guess what I'm saying is both President Trump and the rhetoric that he used, a lot of the rhetoric that he used and the way that he campaigned and then governed, to me, it was just relying on and, and provoking polarization. That troubled me. And then the counter response that I saw of demonizing people who support Trump, that also is a troubling trend to me. Ideally, I think it would be it would be good to um, you know to oppose the policies and the rhetoric that I find harmful and troubling while continuing to uh, seek goodwill and collaboration with my family members, friends, neighbors who are, you know, who happen to support him. Because uh, yeah. I think that there can be a lot of good things that common ground there. And so, yeah, so, but I, I, and I see the same thing happening with, I mean, I don't see conservatives cutting off relationships to the same extent that I see progressive doing it but mm -hmm. certainly the the idea of the, the what i consider to be apocalyptic thinking i do see a lot of that with my conservative friends you know something interesting i noticed in israel when we had wars at the beginning of it it's usually united everyone doesn't matter if you're religious or uh, conservative or a uh, you're progressive, doesn't matter what, what party you believe in or what color do you have. And all these differences kind of erased and we're all in it together because rockets can kill all of us the same way. But it works for a while and then something happened and then it starts to deteriorate, this unity. And yeah, it's happened with COVID too, Just maybe faster. Yes. By the way, I saw the same thing with um, when George Floyd was killed. I mean, there was... Maybe it was just a minute. I think it was more than a minute. But there was a moment there where, I mean, pretty much uh, there was there was a lot of, um, first of all, agreeing that what happened to George Floyd, that that was reprehensible, what the, what the, the police officer did. And then, but also kind of, a, oh, yes, you know, our African-Americans in America, you know, this is something that we need to take seriously, the incidence of police brutality and um, and their troubling experience with the police. There was kind of a, a moment there where there was a taking seriously of that. But to me, it quickly became, you know, to the point where uh, even George Floyd's murder, that, that situation, what happened to the police officer became a little bit um, kind of polarizing. And um, so... Yeah, I, 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 I observe as well what you're saying that with COVID and with other crises, there is this kind of brief, and it seems like the window gets briefer and briefer, but there is this brief window of unity, common ground, let's, let's, let's tackle this, but then it, we, we fall apart. Yeah, and why, why do you think this has happened? Do you have any, like, do you see something? It does seem to me that leadership matters in this. So 
I mean, so it, it's easy to point to, you can say President Trump and the rhetoric that he uses. I mean, that matters. But I, on the other side, I would also point to, I would point to American mainstream media, which acts as a kind of a leader. And to me, the American mainstream media, there is good reason, I think, for conservatives to distrust that American mainstream media will report objectively or or not even report objectively. I think that's there. But also the selection of what we're covering as a news organization, that's where it really, I think, comes down. And so I guess leadership matters. And if leaders are not covering, you know, some people fairly or using very polarizing rhetoric. I mean, that, I think that does affect us all. I mean, you know, in 2016, I saw many of my Trump supporting friends and neighbors express great concern, I think rightly, about the idea that Trump is not my president after Trump was elected. There was this idea that Trump is not my president. And mm-hmm. many of my conservative Trump supporting friends, you know, said this is a this is a terrible trend that, you know, we should if 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 a Democrat becomes president in 2020, I'm not going to do that. Well, unfortunately, Joe Biden became president in 2020. And there's this whole movement of the people who, you know, who lamented this thing about Trump is not my president are now saying um, Biden you know, is not that, the that, that, Biden, that Biden isn't the, the duly legitimate president yeah. uh, and that Trump is my president. And so, yes, and not being able to trust the election, that the election are, are flawed and all of this. Yeah. And, and by the way, I mean, I see this. I would say that this is true. I observe that this is happening on both sides and yes. among Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. So there's some polling that shows I think it was 2017 or 2018 that found, I think it was about two thirds of Democratic voters said that, I forget the exact wording, but basically it was that Donald Trump, uh, that the election had been rigged or that he um, yeah. had been rigged and that he wasn't really a legitimate president because of, uh, I, I suspect largely, I guess, because of the concerns about links to Russia. And so that was true for many Democrats did not think of Trump as you know, the, the duly elected president. And now, I mean, so now we have we have a cycle where now Republicans are doing thinking that about the Democratic president. And once we get into that cycle, you know, it's very difficult to get out of cycles like that, cycles of polarization like that. And then they become violent. And so I really do think that leaders, it's really incumbent upon our leaders to I mean, yes, we should obviously point out cases of fraud and uh voter suppression where those things exist. Um, but to we should also be very careful in, 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 in ensuring that we are not um, irresponsibly stoking distrust of our election systems because I mean this is a this is the way that the the engine of our of democracy. our country of our democracy goes on. Uh, and it's important for both sides, Republicans and Democrats. So for so, distrust to enter yeah. the realm of voting and who is the duly elected next president, that is huge. And I think it represents a really, we got to pull back from the, the apocalyptic thinking there, I think, and make a system, better voting system where it needs to be improved, but also recognize that, hey, it's not the end of the world if somebody from the other party gets in. Yeah. 
I wanted to ask you if you change your mind working at uh, Braver Angels, mm -hmm. hearing those people saying pros and cons about uh, resolutions mm -hmm. or, or before, like you were always conservative and state conservatives. Have you, have you changed your mind? Yeah. Yeah. I think one area where I've, I don't know if changed my mind, but I would say, um, my emphasis is different. So, I mean, I'm 35, so I'm not that old, but about a decade ago, I began, uh, before I began what I do at Brave Rangels, I began interviewing a lot of white working class young people about their stories of forming families, finding work. And, and I heard a lot of stories of, of just really uh, crappy experiences in the workplace of basically getting screwed by employers. And, and that was like, whoa, wow. Like I, there's one story that I heard of a, uh, a person who he was, uh, his wife was, she actually had COVID. And so he had to take some time off from, it was like an auto, auto repair place. So he had to take some time off, but he couldn't get uh, sick leave because I guess he wasn't there long enough. So it was, he wasn't uh, eligible for paid sick leave. But he had to take a couple of days off, nevertheless. But mm -hmm. they, uh, he got fired because he got, because of that, and stories like that that I that I would hear, and I would just say that I, my awareness of the injustices that can happen, particularly to blue collar working class workers, mm -hmm. just because they don't have a lot of social power and economic power in the workplace, uh, that really grew, and so I became very friendly to. The idea of, you know, I think unions are really important for for workers. And right. I mean, I'm open to the idea that, yes, unions need to be reformed and we need good unions. Uh, but unions, I think, are important. I think we need to, you know, I think we need to probably raise the minimum wage. And uh, I, I like to think about I like to talk about the idea of a just wage for for people. So I guess that that whole I wasn't thinking a lot about that before I began those interviews with working class people. But as a result of hearing those stories, I really grew in how much I'm thinking about that issue. And uh, so for me, it's something that, you know, I think a lot about now and it's, it influences how I, how I vote and, uh, and how I see the world. Whereas before that wasn't really on my mind before I began those interviews. Right. Yeah. Injustice is another, in, in another way for people not to, to trust the government when somebody doesn't get what they need. Right. And they don't have somebody that uh, speak their voice. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. There's a, there's a book called the tyranny of merit by Michael Sandel. And he talks about how in, I believe it was the 1960s you had, um, you had something like 60% of people in Congress had four-year college degrees or more. So you had a fairly, fairly large number of people that didn't have four-year college degrees in Congress. Today, it's 95% of people in Congress have four-year college degrees or more. And so increasingly, it's the case that if you're you know, a working class American, that uh, there's just not as much of a platform. You just don't have as much of a political platform. Uh, you could talk about unions. Unions used to be uh, a platform for working class people to 
be able to wield power and voice their voice their views on on how things should be. But I mean, they're not only like eight percent of American workers are in unions. So there's just there's 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 a there's not as much of a political platform for working class blue collar Americans. And so yes, I think you're right that that ends up um, not seeing yourself, not being represented uh, by our leaders. That ends up alienating us and and making us feel apart from our leaders and, our, and the leadership class. And do you know if the working class is more leaning to conservative or to liberals? Uh, well, I mean, uh, in America, do they lean more conservative or liberal? You know, I don't actually, I mean, if you look at, um, I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, I know, yeah, I don't, I don't know the, it would be interesting to go back and look at 2020, for instance, to see among all non-four-year college-educated people, uh, you know, to, to look at the, the split among Biden and, and Trump. I know certainly it's the case that among the vast majority of white non-college-educated people went for Trump, but I don't know if you factor all races there, what it, what it would come down to. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how did you get involved with Braver Angels? So for me, I'm a, one of the co-founders of Braver Angels, and it started... And so in the previous work that I was talking about when I was interviewing working class young people with their stories, that was for a think tank that David Blankenhorn, now the president of Brave Angels, uh, had started years ago called the Institute for American Values. So you and know him from the, before. Yes, exactly. Before, so before I, even, ah, cool. Right. So he was my first boss out of college. I, I interned for, for his organization when I was in college. And it was a think tank that brought together scholars from all across the political spectrum, scholars and practitioners to study and strengthen civil society. And so, yeah, so I knew him from that. And then I uh, was doing some other work for a couple of years, but we, David and I stayed in touch. And then when David had, David started thinking about political polarization and starting an organization to address political polarization. And he invited me to help start the organization. So we had, we had already, it was, that was like September of, of 2020. So we already had this idea of we're going to have an organization and we're going to address political polarization, but we really didn't really know what we were, what area of political polarization we were going to focus on or how we were going to address it, what we're going to do about it. And because, you know, we could do, you know, we could be more of like a think tank, uh, you know, publishing studies and reports and bringing together scholars and academics to, to talk about it and what can be done about it. But it was after the 2016, it was just a couple of days after the 2016 election. And David and I were talking over email and, uh, you know, David Blankenhorn, he lives in the Upper West Side of New York City. And he was saying, you know, gosh, it's, you know, it's a complete morgue up here. Everybody is, is just completely devastated. And I said, well, well, in South Lebanon, Ohio, where I live, which is uh, voted heavily for Trump, the people are. I was talking. I'd been talking to a neighbor, and he was talking about how Trump, for him, represented hope and change. And the words that were associated with uh, President Obama. Yeah. And so there's this vast chasm, and and David said, "My gosh, you know, we've got to let's try to bring together ten people who just voted for Donald Trump." with 10 people who just voted for Hillary Clinton. We'll do it in your neighborhood, David. You organize the people. I'll come out and we'll see what we can do. It's an experiment. 
And uh, I thought that sounded like a good idea. And so we did it. And we, uh, then we ended up getting our, we got our people. And then we called our friend, Bill Doherty, who is now the designer of Brave Angels Workshops. And he is a, a family therapist. And Bill came up with the a design for what, what became the first Brave Angels Workshop. But it was through that weekend. It was a whole weekend that we came together, just regular people. I mean, it was the kind of thing where it was the, it was the Middle East. When you offered people to come to the workshop, to this kind of uh, weekend, were they excited about that? Were they afraid about it? There was a lot of trepidation, but also curiosity. Curiosity. And, was, but yes, a lot of trepidation and the kind of, you know, I, I remember there was a sense of among Trump voters, it was like, why are they so upset? And among Clinton voters, it was, why on earth did they vote for Trump? And, and so there was this kind of mind boggling, like curiosity about like, who are these people and what were they thinking? Right. And, but it was enough to bring us together in, in, in conversation. And that was a powerful weekend. It was, I mean, you know, we, we shed some tears we had some really difficult, tense moments, but also some really wonderfully intimate and, you know, moments where we kind of saw each other and saw some points of common ground and just came to like each other a little bit. And so by the end of that, you know, some people said, well, I think that this should continue and I'd like to help make this happen in other communities. Wow. And then, and then there was um, an NPR host in Minnesota that found out about what we did. And they had Bill Doherty and one of the conservative leaning and one of the progressive leaning participants from that workshop on the show. And then other people listening in across the country were listening to this and said, I'd like to do this in my community. And so it just took off from there. And so it became, and it was after that, that we realized after that first weekend realized, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is going to be a grassroots effort, bringing together ordinary people to see if we can find each other again, as citizens, as fellow citizens, fellow neighbors. Yeah, just humans, and right? Human beings. <laughs> just yeah. human beings, yeah. So that's how it all started. And that was five years ago, December 2016, right after the 2016 presidential election. Yeah. And do you find challenge to bring people to do this workshop? Did, did I find it challenging for, to, bring to bring people together for that workshop or in general for the work? In, for, in general, for... for Depolarization work. Yes. Yes and no. I mean, yes, it's challenging because sometimes the people that I really want to be there, uh, you know, if I'm organizing a workshop, I'm going to think about, okay, who are some of the most passionate conservative people that I know and conservative leaders that I know in the community and who are some of the most passionate progressive people and leaders that I know in the community? Because mm -hmm. we want that we want the strong conviction from, from all sides sitting at the table. And so it's disappointing and it can be challenging for some of those people who are most passionate to, you know, to trust you enough or to trust the people on the other side enough to come together for a conversation. But uh, there's also plenty of people that are just, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes, you know, when people become members of Brave Angels, sometimes they'll say, I'm just, I'm tired of, of hating people on the other side and this isn't good for me. And I want to find a way to better understand people. And so what I see is that 
you know, it just, it can become really wearying. It, it takes a toll on me if I am, if I'm really loathing or hating or strongly disliking people, that takes a toll on you. Yeah. And how much better is it if we can, if we can, you know, find to discover some peace uh, with each other and uh, you know, even we're, just yes, you know it's good for our souls. I think if we can, if we can discover some areas of common humanity, and and if I can, if I realize if it's true that you're not a monster, if I can see that, then that's better for my soul, and it's better for you, and it's better for all of us. And so I see that's why some people come to Braver Angels is because they're just tired of the seeing the polarization within themselves and within the country and they want to be part of something hopeful. Yeah. So how, how do you make somebody that is very passionate to trust you that you, that they will be heard to trust you that they have time to speak? What, 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 what are the fears? The, I mean, the, the, what I say is, is the truth is that at braver at a braver angels workshop, this is not a place for, for us to try to, uh, there's not some secret agenda here to get you to change your mind. It is a place for us to be able to speak our minds and to do it respectfully and to be able to hear others out on, on what's on their minds. And so, I mean, I, 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 I just, I, I say what a braver angels, the spirit of what a braver angels workshop or forum is. And I invite them to participate in that. And what are their concerns? Concerns when, are... The one that, yeah, the, the one Right. Sometimes, are... I mean, you know, I consider myself a pro-life conservative on, on the abortion issue, which on the abortion issue, which is an issue that um, is of strong concern to many people on the right and the left, but many conservatives that I know. And I, I had one uh, strong pro-life activist tell me once that I don't have time to talk with people who are, who are pro-choice because I'm out here saving babies' lives and I, I've got to focus on that. On the other hand, I know that there's, there's people, progressives, you know, who say things like, I don't have time to talk with people who are fostering, uh, in their view, a racist society and racist systems. I've got to, I've got to help. I've got to help. Um, save lives, and so I don't have time for this. So on both sides, there can be that uh, that that off that could be a concern, is that this is a not just a waste of time, but that it would be, um, but that it could damage your cause by um, by by seeming to uh, lighten mm-hmm. the gravity of the injustice that you're concerned about. I don't think that's true, but that is a concern that I, that I find. Yeah. I find the argument, it's a waste of time or I don't have time uh, to be superficial and not what they really think, not what they really mean. Hmm. Tell me about that. People have, like you said, they're passionate. They have lots of emotions. So if I say I don't have time for that, I may be afraid to touch that. I may be afraid to be triggered. I may be afraid to... 
to explode because it's very emotional for me or something like that. Or I'm afraid to be convinced. I want to hold on to my uh, opinions. I don't want to let them go. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I find that um, unless somebody is like, I don't know. But many times we say like, I don't have money for something, for example. It's not that be- because you don't have money for that. It's mm-hmm. most probably it's, you don't prioritize it. Mm-hmm. Right? So we say something, but we mean like, I don't have time to breathe. It's not that you can't breathe. Mm-hmm. So there is a, it's another way to say things that you don't really want to express what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's interesting. I do have sympathy for the idea that, look, the justice of the cause that I'm engaged in, whether it's addressing racism, whether it's um, in, in the, from the perspective of a pro-life person like me, saving unborn babies, um, that is so important. It's a matter of life and death that I don't want to do anything. I've got to, in terms of priority, I've got to focus on that. There is a part of me that, that thinks that there is some, that's not completely crazy to think like that. I mean, I think about like in the, in the American civil war. I didn't mean crazy. It's not about crazy. Okay. It's subconscious. Subconscious. Yes. It's not crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What what I'm saying too, is I don't know how you think about this, but I think that there is, um, there's a positive good that the person is holding on to when the, when a person is, saying that, um, look, you know, talking with people who view, who view this grave matter differently is not high on my priority list. There's, 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 a, there's an actual positive good that they're focusing on, which is addressing the injustice and correcting it. Um, and, and so, but, um, so I guess I have, I have sympathy for that point of view, but I think it's short-sighted. And I think it uh, ultimately leads to the destruction of a country in which we are laboring together for the good society, even though we might have dramatically different views of some aspects of that. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's important that, uh, that we be able to stand shoulder to shoulder to build a more perfect union, as we say in the, the American founding documents. Have you tried to, for example, with the people that said that I don't have time, ask mm-hmm. about what they think about polarization? Like if it, this is something that they would, is a problem enough to talk about? That's a good, that's a, that's a good place to take the conversation. I don't think I've personally done that, but that seems good to me. Yeah. What would you say? Yeah. So I would maybe ask if there is a common ground on the concern about polarization and what it does to democracy and what it does to us as humans when we dehumanize each other. And instead of talking about the topics themselves, like vaccination, which is very polarizing and right away people have their own opinions, I think asking about how, is, uh, how do you feel when our country is, so, is, is torn so much, stuff like that, and and maybe there is more common ground there. Maybe there is more. It's it's approaching to different fears and different concerns. So it's kind of a um, bypass. That seems wise to me to uh, to talk about the 
the bigger, not bigger, but to talk about the big problem of polarization and what effect is that having on us as fellow citizens and as a country? Yeah, if somebody yes. is, is not willing to talk mm-hmm. in situations mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, because I mean, you know, to put it negatively, where I think that the approach that of one side good, one side evil, we have to vanquish that side, where that takes us is, I think, violence and um, civil war. And if we take that to its logical conclusion, it means that I really, not just metaphorically, but that actually I might have to fight against you. I take up arms against you because you're you're responsible for for wrecking evil on this country. And, but I think that's not, you know, that to me is, uh, it's not necessary to think like that because the, 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 the reality is, I think that both conservative and progressive sides that they have, that they're seeing aspects of reality that the other side is not necessarily seeing and that we need each other in order to form a more perfect union. It's kind of like a, uh, you know, it's almost like two different temperaments. Um, and, you know, you have your sanguine temperament and your phlegmatic temperament and sanguines and phlegmatics. We need each other uh, in order to be uh, you know, for the flourishing of society and conservatives and progressives. I do think that there are questions of, you know, justice and injustice involved here. But I think it's also very easy to be deluded and blinded by the ways in which, you know, we we see through a glass dimly. And I, even though I think I'm on the right side of history about everything, the reality is I'm not, you know, if that, if I'm, if I'm, the reality is there are going to be things that decades from now, I'm going to look back and say, wow, that was a misguided view I had. Yeah. And that's just being part of being human is that we were fallible in our judgment and in our, and what our perception and, so I think that that's in, in America, conservatives and progressives, look, we're still at a place where we're basically, we really do have good people everywhere. Uh, and, and it's a matter of drawing out the best in each of us. And uh, I do think that we need each other in order for America to be more fully herself. We need conservatives and progressives. We need the black lives matter activists. We need the tea party, Donald Trump voting activist. Yeah. I completely agree with you on that. This is so important and and I and I wonder if each of us have their own truth is truth solid? Yeah. I I guess I would say that truth is solid, but that our perceptions of truth may be less solid or more solid. Um I I I do want to hold on to that there is objective reality right there there are there are objective facts there is there are things that are objectively true but um on some things i guess i just i'm not as confident that i have that i am 100 percent accurate in my assessment of what is true and what is what is false right yeah you know from from the holocaust when when uh, you had survivors some people say after i survived auschwitz the I now know there is God because I survived mm. it. He saved me. And mm-hmm. some people from the same camp survived right. say there's no God. What after what mm. I've seen, 
there's no god mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and 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 we can say um, i remember i was talking with my husband and we say okay there is one let's i'm not good with numbers so 1% uh, chance to die from covid mm-hmm. i said it's not a lot he said that's a lot <laughs> the same <laughs> numbers <laughs> right yes yes i mean i'll give you an example from probably the strongest one of the strongest convictions I have that has political implications and why I think people who are on the opposite side of me are important for the flourishing of, of America. So it's on abortion. So I would say that my pro-life conviction that life begins at conception, that is for me, one of the strongest convictions that I have that has political implications, because I think that we should enshrine in law. If I really believe that, then I think we should make, it's a matter of justice that we should protect all human life. And so, but at the same time, you know, so I'm with my political conservative friends who talk about overturning Roe v. Wade and enshrining pro-life laws. I'm with my conservative friends on that. But I'm then also with uh, my progressive friends when they talk about the importance of health care for particularly poor, low-income and working class uh, women and families and Medicaid for children, because if we're going to have a society in which we're welcoming all human life, then we have to have a society that is helping those those unborn babies that become born and their their mothers and fathers to flourish. And to me, you know, that means in the American context, it probably means more tax, you know, more could be more. Yeah, more taxes and and uh, Medicaid and strong health care for everyone. And those are things where my progressive friends are, they're a little bit, I would say they're a little, they're thinking about that more, that aspect of it more. And, uh, but I would say my, in my view, my progressive friends are blind to the vulnerability and the fragility and the injustice that's being done to the unborn child. So there is a case where, in my view, there's a profound injustice that is happening. But we need all of us in order for um, to have a flourishing society here where, you know, the, the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich, where we have a chance to to thrive and where all human life is is welcome. Yeah. And you have a rich, rich perspective. And, and this is very beautiful because most of us lacking that, right? Like holding on to one side. Mm. And b- being able to see both sides and being able to appreciate the need in both sides. Because when we understand that we need to disagree and we need to have a variety of opinions on the same topic, we understand the complexity of life. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I do think that it's important for someone like me to say all that and to recognize that it is possible to have a president who or a leader or to hold to an idea that is just really, really bad. And, you know, will will it just inflict a lot of injustice and that we should oppose those things. So I'm saying this and I'm not at all saying that we should just, oh, you know, let's just all, you know, celebrate each other's policies and it's just all great. It's not that bad. No, there are some things, there are injustices that are perpetuated by policies and, but the reality is that good people are going to see those same policies in different ways. And 
ah, what I wish it were not so, but it is so. Yes. And um, so, yeah, that's that that's part of the to me, that's part of the the complex, the complexity of this. Yeah. And what is your solution? What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, for me, one of it is that we should, as much as possible, strive to seek uh, for relationships, friendships, uh, interactions with people who are different politically from from me. Mm-hmm. Because it's so easy if I, you know, as a pro-life conservative, I'm just thinking in the abstract, it, it can become very easy to start thinking about people um, who who are pro-choice as monsters, as moral monsters. But the reality is that if I sit down and talk with somebody, you know, who's pro-choice, nine times out of 10, I'm going to find that they're a a wonderfully decent, compassionate, good uh, human being with whom I agree on a lot of other important things. And so, but that doesn't happen unless we have a chance to interact with each other. doesn't mean we have to be great friends, uh, but just, you know, fellow citizens, I guess, um, is a way that I would put it. So, so create, uh, creating ways for us to, for fellow citizens to be in places where we're interacting with each other, working with each other, um, uh, you know, in civil society and, and for the common good. I think that's, that's, that's important. And to have leaders. And then the second thing is to have leaders who, and we're upholding a political culture that is encouraging this idea of relationship across the political aisle rather than the current fashionable trend is which is to say that you know democrats are monsters republicans are monsters we've got to vanquish them yes what what is your next uh, aspiration maybe a new year's resolution or a next thing for braver angels at you aspire to see for me it's really to the we the people's forum that i that i help to lead with the leadership team is to really see our we the people's project become something robust in american life where you have a a racially and politically politically diverse group of working class americans finding common ground on issues and it becoming a platform for for depolarization and political activity and political conversations. And so for me, that, that really is it, is that we can build something that becomes a robust place for to hear the perspectives and experiences of, of working class people and for working class people to be able to participate meaningfully in uh, this aspect of our public life and to help depolarize our country. So, you know, it would be the... It's the Black Lives Matter activists, you know, working with the Latino immigrant, working with the the white Trump supporter, you know, uh, and it's us. And we're going to find common ground on things, you know, yeah. uh, particularly on, on the economics of the among working class people. You're going to find a lot of common ground on the economics of, of, of all this right now. Um, and so I just think that there's a lot of there's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of potential there and I'd like to be a part of, of, of that kind of um, building that, that diverse coalition of working class people that we don't often get to hear from in our country. Right. Yeah. That's, it's not common for sure. Mm. 
Um, yeah, I think we covered a lot of things. Uh, I, I wrote myself here to ask you if you see difference between a, a political a conflicts to a personal conflicts mm. when you do the workshop with families too. Certainly, it seems like the skills for navigating political conflict are relevant to are the same skills that are helpful in navigating personal conflict. For instance, you know, in Braver Angels, we have a skills for bridging the divide workshop. And one of the, we talk about speaking skills so that we're speaking in a way that the other person who is different politically is likely to hear what I'm saying and listening skills so that the other person is likely to feel heard as a result of my listening. And one of the skills that we talk about is, is paraphrasing and, and listening. When I'm listening to those paraphrasing, saying back what you heard from the other person in a way that uh, the, the, you're saying back to the other person that says, yes, that represents my viewpoint. Um, so, I mean, of course, that's you know, paraphrasing that that's a, you know, that's a skill in a, in a marriage or a romantic relationship that will be very helpful and that, you know, that yeah. a family therapist talk about. So, um, so yeah, I do think that there is, uh, it is, it is relevant. And also the dynamics of trust are, are the same. Um, so yeah, I, I right, do think that there right is. right and wrong. And, and right and wrong. Yes, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so interestingly enough, Bill Doherty, who's a fellow co-founder of Braver Angels, and he's a family therapist. So he, he came at this, when he was designing the first Braver Angels workshop, he was thinking, you know, he, he comes from years of experience as a family and marriage therapist, <laughs> helping couples and families who are estranged from each other to maybe find each other again. And so he was you start you just using those skills to think about a country and we're estranged from each other as fellow citizens. Can we find each other again as fellow citizens? That was exactly my process. <laughs> mm. I thought mm -hmm. like, if I could do it here, why should not be able to do it here? <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you about uh, how do you see trauma related to resolving uh, conflicts like that? When somebody mm. has a severe trauma or um, mm. talking about their trauma or expressing their trauma, like mm. with Black Lives Matter, for example, that they have many years of trauma. Yeah. Say more about that. That's very interesting. So the more we had, the bigger the trauma is or historical trauma mm. with, uh, with people of color, for example, or with Jews and Holocaust, like the bigger like the roots of it are, it's hard for us to open up and it's hard for us to trust and it's hard for us mm. to be able to listen and it's hard to us to regulate our nervous system too. Mm -hmm. And all that is part of how we listen, how we talk, how we are willing mm. to engage in those kind of conversations even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems very relevant. And, you know, as I mentioned, I, part of my, my formative work before Braver Angels was doing this research project where I had a chance to interview over a hundred uh, white working class people. So this is white working class people. But, um, and so that you, it's, it's, you can never say 
traumas in different communities, you never, you know, are the same, its own trauma. But one of the things that I heard from white working class people was, was just this, just years and years of, of being stigmatized as a loser or um, as less than because you grew up in this town that's a working class town and you're, you're a loser you're, or because you don't go to college, you know, or something like that. And that, that takes a toll on you and that really affects your, your psyche. And so I guess that would be, to me, that would be an example of a kind of a, a social trauma. Uh, and among my white working class friends, I can see that, you know, uh, affecting, you know, your interaction with, with, um, and opening up and trusting other people in, in conversations. And, um, so yeah, that seems like something profound to, to, to think more about. And I'm interested in the fact that you asked that question and that does seem important to pay attention to and to be mindful of. Yeah. So I'm exploring the racial issue in a movement that protects the last remaining of the old growth forest in BC. This is happening in a patch of that land, the native territory. You would think that they uh, will welcome openly white people that come to help them. Uh, that help them fight the police with their bodies, sleep in tents overnight, build blockades, structures and all that things. Nope, <laughs> not so simple. So some of them see this help as racist. They say that uh, coming um, on their territory without building relationship first, without getting permission to do so, is colonialist and it's racist. <laughs> and you say, what is this? What's going on, right? So so that's talking to the trauma. So, so after years of oppression, many of them, many of the native people, grew deep distrust in white people. And for good reason. Um, so that that white people represent all evil that has done to them, that, ha that had been done to them. So the trauma is so deep that they can't see beyond the pain. So those people, they even try to damage the, effort, the efforts of saving the old growth forest, even that the old growth forest are their own ancestors. Hmm. Okay, so another way you can see uh, trauma speaking is the way we talk with each other and the way we connect things that are not really connected, but in our perspective is it's connected. Like if you talk too loud or too fast or don't let me speak, it's because you disrespect me and it's because I'm indigenous or because I'm a woman or because I'm this. And I already know your intentions. So, and when I, nobody, I will not ask you, but if I will ask you, of course, you said, no, it's not the reason. I just wanted to, I wanted to finish my sentence or something like that. Or I didn't notice you, you have something to say. But because I will, if I'm feeling the trauma, I already know your reason. I already know your intention and I have no, no intention to ask you because I already know. I don't need to ask that. It's obvious for me. So this is another way you can see that. And it's very interesting if you want to listen to the podcast that Driftwood is talking about. Uh, she is referring, she's, a, she's talking about experience that happened to her just like that. Oh, wow. And, and how do you, and, and I think this is your question, 
and I'd be interested in your take on it. How do you see this affecting, how is this affecting political polarization? The, the, the trauma we have? Mm-hmm. Okay, my take on that. So I think that when we have trauma, um, what is trauma? Trauma is life experience that led us to decisions, right? Like uh, we experienced X and therefore we believe in Y. We saw that, we know that, it's true for us. Nobody can convince us otherwise right now because we saw that like it's, it's kind of written in our body, in our DNA. This is our, our, what we know. Um, so when we have trauma that are not healed and not addressed, our bias is more deep. It will be harder to convince us. For example, like we talked about cultural traumas, that as a culture we, we, we experience that, it's become so true. So let's try to convince um, right now indigenous person that white people want their best, right? And maybe this specific white person does want uh, their best. So we have to heal the trauma and then the, we need to be aware of, the, of our biases, our preconditioning beliefs, and then we can be open and creative in conversation and create something new in a conversation. And we will be willing to listen and to see people as they are and not as we, our trauma dictates them to be. So I think trauma is dictating, is a stronger dictator in, in that uh, sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, as we've been talking about, it's, it's important. I mean, living in a pluralistic society is difficult. And one of the keys to thriving in a pluralistic society is to recognize, to be open to the goodness of people who are different from me and to recognize my own fallibility. And both of those recognitions can be impaired because of bias uh, and because of, and if trauma is, is narrowing my focus and kind of biasing me in, in some ways, then that is going to make it more difficult for me to, to kind of see the fullness of, of, of reality. Yes, and also to find better solution. If you're not biased and we have a conversation that is working or effective conversation, as I, as I like to, to call it, we find new solutions. We're working together to create solutions. If I'm biased or you're biased or we are biased, we, we, there's so many blind spots that we don't see and then we can't create anything new. So it's important to say that we are all biased. We cannot be not biased because we have life experience and this is where we get, you know. But we need to be aware of that. And it, it's not a bad thing to be biased. We just need to be aware of that. Yes, yes, right. So that reminds me of part of my, I mentioned that I'm, I'm Catholic. Yeah. And part of my motivation for doing this work in Braver Angels and bridge building and working for a better understanding of each other is comes from the 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 famous parable of the good samaritan that is told in the the christian 
Gospels. And what's interesting about that is that Jesus tells that story about a good Samaritan after he and his followers have traveled through uh, Samaria and the Samaritans basically, because of the hostility towards Samaritans and, and Jews, basically tell Jesus and his followers, you're not welcome here. Get out of town. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just like hightail it out. They're, they're completely rejected. And, and later on in that journey with the frosty, rece- that terrible reception by the, by the Samaritans, you know, probably fresh in their minds, Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? And he tells the story of a good Samaritan, of a Samaritan who saved someone else, presumably a Jew's life. And that part of that, so part of what that that means to me is that it's possible that even because of years and years of conflict and trauma and so forth and so forth, it's easy to regard a group of people as just totally the enemy or or other or crazy or bad. But that would be blinding myself to the possibility. And they're probably the reality that there are good people on there who may be a part of my salvation, right? Who may be, who, who may end up saving me, right? Nice, yeah. In some way. And, and so this is just part, to me, this is part of the reality that we need each other, right? We're all, for better or for worse, we're here on planet Earth together. We're sharing the same, we have a common home. And for those of us in a common country, we have another common home and so forth, right? Yeah. So we've got to find a place. We have to, we have to if you will, fight for each other's goodness, even when there's years and decades and centuries of animosity and reasons to not trust in the other's goodness, we have to fight for each other's goodness uh, in order for us to thrive and to, so that we can flourish together. Yeah. I really like the word salvation here because we can, like you can think about it in a, in a concrete way. Like if somebody helped me or saved my life, but mm. we know that we are more than physical body. Mm. And to save your soul is like to open your eyes to more reality mm. or to, mm. to something that in, was you that in you that was maybe, maybe you were blind to. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it, it feels like waking up, right? What is mm. awakening? You wake up to, to, to see something else you didn't see. Mm. Like even if, if you hate someone and you wake up to see that they're actually good or they didn't mean to harm you, it's it's kind of awakening feeling in this mm. moment. So it, I I like this. Yes, salvation. That is that is that is profound. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that is. I, I like what you said about salvation and how that touches on our the well being of our souls, and and it goes back to, um, are we really? are we living at peace within ourselves if we are, um, if we are hating a group of people or uh, resenting or loathing a group of people? Is that really, is that a symptom of us being at peace within ourselves? And, 
so yes, this is not this is this is this is as much about the well-being of our souls that is for you know the well-being of our of our neighbors who are different from us and the well-being of our country, the well-being of the planet, of our common home. Mm-hmm.